Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things. Friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, said the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will write, I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another, or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall know all me. Or for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well done. Well done, everybody. Music and the reading of scripture, well done. We are in uh, the last couple of sermons of this sermon series for the Lenten season this week and next week. Palm Sunday, hopefully you are making plans to be here not only for Palm Sunday, but also all of Holy Week. I know that you're going to get this announcement later on, so let that just be an echo of what I'm going to say now. Man, it's important that you're here for Holy Week. I know, lots of really, really good stuff, big things going on. I love basketball. It is a challenge, isn't it? But really, really hope that you can take part in the experience of Holy Week. That starts next week with Palm Sunday, one of the more highly ironic um, Sundays of the entire year. It is in so many ways that strange, bittersweet um, connection and tension actually between adulation but also a very painful Sunday where we realize what it is about us that ends up placing this Jesus on the cross. We won't have Wednesday night activities of Holy Week. We won't have anything. The building will be dark um, on Wednesday night of Holy Week. But Thursday, our Monday Thursday service, which now takes place out in the atrium, will be a a really important, meaningful time. There will be uh, hand washing and foot washing. It will be family friendly. It will be in the round out there. It will be somewhat chaotic because we think that's faithful to the tradition of the Monday Thursday service. And then Friday, our choir is already hard at work getting ready to uh, provide for us this gift of a musical presentation. But back there behind closed doors, while the rest of us are out here beholding, beholding the cross and all of these candles up here, as those candles are lit, it represents the light coming into the world. It follows the track, the giant narrative in Scripture. But it also follows the trajectory of Holy Week where slowly but surely these same lights are extinguished and it results in uh, this, this look where only the Christ candle, which will be situated up here on the cross, only the Christ candle will be left burning, and even it will be snuffed out. And we will leave that night in darkness and in silence. Perhaps you will hear people weeping because, one of two reasons, I guess, perhaps you'll hear people weeping that night because they do recognize something within, in themselves, within themselves, that is just like whatever it was inside of people who placed Jesus on that cross, or maybe they'll be weeping for the death of our Savior. 
So I hope you will make it through all those. I think they're all important steps in a very important journey known as Lent. It's very important steps. In fact, let's talk about this Lenten journey a little bit. We started with Ash Wednesday, and after Ash Wednesday, you've heard us say time and again that we want you to be more transparent, more vulnerable. We want you to be more honest about your life of faith. And we have said things like this, that it's actually a move toward baptism or the reaffirmation of your baptismal vows. It is about time spent in prayer. It's about time spent in scripture. But it is not just about you. I want to make sure that we're clear about that. You participate in, as an individual for sure, so you need to read your Bible and you need to pray. Again, don't let me do those things for you. You, the individual believer, need to do those things, but do those things understanding that it's all done against a larger backdrop of what God is doing with God's people. Easy for me to say and for you to hear that you, a believer, that you are in process. Well, right. We're all in process. But all of creation is in process. All of creation is in process. And by our individual lives of faith and the decisions that we make to be obedient and to be faithful, we are a part of the means whereby God moves creation forward. Creation is in process. God does have a dream for creation. God has a vision for all of creation, and we see that in Scripture, but that dream is not yet fully realized, and that vision is not yet accomplished. Can you hear me now? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Because sometimes I think what we do is we grade, we grade the authenticity of our Christian tradition based on what we see in the evidence around us. A lot of people do that. Some people, some people, obviously not the Christians in the room, right? But there are some people out there, you know, those people, right? Some people look around and say, God must not be alive, or God must not be paying attention, or God is not active, or God doesn't care. Just look at the evidence out there. I mean, doesn't Scripture say that Christianity is supposed to fix some of these things? These things aren't fixed, so where is God? And we have this tendency to do that on an individual basis as well. I am experiencing this and this and this. God must not be paying attention. You don't have to raise your hand or nod. I know this about people. I have been this person. We have a tendency to judge God and the faithfulness of God based on my comfort level in a given day. If this is happening, then I ask the question, where is God? If this happens to me again... Then I ask it even louder, where is God? Are you paying attention, God? If it happens to me a third and fourth and a fifth time, I start to clench my fists and ask, where is God? Where are you, God? Do we understand, and this is tough stuff, asked my class this morning, do we understand, more importantly, do we believe that God is in fact doing something currently, and not just with me, but in all of creation? Is it okay for all of creation, for humanity to be in process? 
Because all of this best scriptures, it's not just a thread. I said this today in the class. It's not just a thread that runs through scripture. It is this giant super highway that runs through all of scripture that leads us to believe that God is in the process of doing something in all of creation. That's why we can still see some of the tragedy that we see, some of the things that are just mind-blowingly negative out there. The reason we can still see all of those things is because people... Creation is still in process. Humanity is still in process. I mean, take a look at this. We have it all the way back in Genesis 12. God says to Abram, who would become Abraham, all people on earth will be blessed through you. We haven't really seen that just yet. So we live in hope. Very important image here. In the psalm, several times the people of God are portrayed as the city on a hill and all the other nations will come to us, the people of the light, to ask us how to go about life and how to do this and that and the other. Well, we don't necessarily see that just yet, but we believe, I hope we believe, I hope we hope that God is moving things that direction. This has been a very important image for us for a long time around here. The wolf will lay down with the lamb. Now, sometimes what we do is we take these very important images and we just make them about the hereafter. But when you make these images about the hereafter, you get to sort of opt out. You get to opt out. Your Monday doesn't have to be about making sure that we are moving toward wolves and lambs laying down together. But people... That is the heart cry of the prophet who is speaking for God, who is saying, there will come a time here when we will learn that there is something more important than what divides us. See, I am not sure that we as a people (laughs) brought together, brought together on a regular basis Liturgically, in the waters of baptism, we initiate people into this movement, this group of people who are supposed to believe that God is doing something this side of eternity, this side of the hereafter, this side of heaven, whatever that's going to look like. Hear me, I still believe in all of that. I still believe in eternity. I believe in heaven. I believe in all of that. But I believe that Scripture is loud, and I believe that Scripture is clear. In its assertion, in its testimony, that God is in the process of doing something here, here. And that this wolf and the lamb thing, this wolf and lamb thing, we're supposed to be working that direction now, you know, like Sunday and Monday. Jeremiah 31, you've just heard it read, you're going to hear it again here in a second. There's coming a time where I have a new covenant and I will write these things on people's hearts It will become a part of their DNA so much so that that we won't need Christian education and teaching. What? (laughs) Because everyone will know. Everyone will know. We may not be there yet. Mary's song, the Magnificat, has some incredible lines in there. And in those lines, it says essentially this. The poor will not always be on the bottom rung of this ladder But someday, God will unleash a creation in which there is great justice and evenness. We believe that that God is moving things that direction. Now, some people want to claim Christianity and yet resist that for whatever reason. 
But it is historic, faithful Christianity to believe that, in fact, God has in mind a revolution of sorts that will allow people to not be on the bottom rung. Revelation 21 and 22, you know this is one of my favorite books, and one of my favorite passages in one of my favorite books, and it talks about this giant city, this perfect cube, representative of the very presence of God, the fullness, the perfect presence of God that comes here. It's not that we all leave here and go to it. It's floating somewhere out there in outer space. Nope. It says that all of that All of God comes here, and there is rescue and restoration and the right kinds of renovation and hope and healing, the healing of the nations. All that's supposed to happen here. But do we believe that? I'm telling you, for far too long, I think we're coming out of it, But for far too long, Christianity was too much about the hereafter, which allowed us as believers to opt out of the hard work of reclaiming creation and reaching humanity. But no, we actually believe that here, 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 wolves and lambs can be together. I don't think so, John. Wolves and lambs can can never be together. There's, There's no way. Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest Laughing back and forth at what the other has to say Reminiscing this and that and having such a good time Oodle lolly, oodle lolly, golly, what a day Never ever thinking there was danger in the water They were drinking, they just guzzled it down Never dreaming that a scheming sheriff and his posse Was watching them and gathering around Robin Hood and Little John running through the forest Jumping fences, dodging trees and trying to get away Contemplating nothing but escaping, finally making it Oodle lolly, oodle lolly, golly, what a day Oodle lolly, oodle lolly, golly, what a day I know, it's just animals, I get that, I get that But it is a good, tangible reminder that God has in mind the reclamation of all creation. And that things, perhaps, will be as God wants them to be, not as we cynically have determined that they're going to be. Now, hear that again. Hear that again. Let this video be a reminder that things are going to be, at some point, what God wants them to be. They are not going to be what you and I cynically believe that they have to be. You are not nearly as excited about that as I hope that you would be. In other words, we live in Christian hope. (laughs) Hope, hope that God would see fit to use even folks like us to move creation that direction. We said this last week, and I want you to hear it again, and thank you for your feedback after last week. We said this last week. There is something about God that does not change. And since there is that something about God that does not change, we have the capacity to change, and not just as individuals, but as people. 
What you're about to see in Isaiah and Jeremiah 31 is that something that does not change. God's commitment to creation, God's commitment to creation, God's commitment to humanity does not change. Even if God decides to go about it a different way, it is God's commitment to humanity and to creation that does not change. You're about to see it here. The days are surely coming, God says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, a couple of things you need to know. This is a hugely loaded statement. Number one, at the time this, this particular verse would have been written or understood, Israel is gone. So it's already poetic. It's already artistic. And what it's saying is God will recover all of God's people God will recover all of God's people, and God will continue the process of working through God's people to reach all the people. And God says, I will make a covenant with them. Now, this is not a contract. A contract gets negotiated by two parties, right? Especially way back when, a covenant would have been understood very differently than we would understand today's contract. A covenant happens when a stronger party commits himself or herself In this case, God commits God's self to the weaker party, God's people, and says, here's how things are going to be. Here's how we will be together. In some sense, then, God (laughs) establishes both sides of a covenant. Again, in a contract, you come to the table, I come to to the table, and we negotiate the particulars. But in a covenant, especially in the Old Testament, especially when God's making the covenant, God says, here's how it will be between us. Here's how it will be between us, between me and my people. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband or lover, says the Lord. Now, here's the covenant he's talking about. You kind of know what he's talking about now, right? God, in making this covenant with God's people, took them out of Egypt. In fact, God takes them out of Egypt because God has already made a covenant with God's people. Hear this. The author of the book of Jeremiah does not think that the covenant started on Mount Sinai just because there were written rules. That was just a part of the process. <laughs> now you're going to hear this voice say, not a particularly great part of the process because we're having to ch- change course. But the covenant, and we've said that this Lent, the covenant started long before that. Do you remember all the way back, all the way back to the uh, story about Noah? You remember what Noah said? Remember what God said to Noah? They came out of the ark God kept using this language, I will establish my covenant with you and with all of creation. And in fact, to remind me of this covenant, remember this, I'm going to put my weapon of war down, string down, and I'm going to place it into the sky so that I will see it and I will remember it, God says, and so that you will see it and you will remember it, that God has committed God's self to the people. So God had already established a covenant. But there came a point in time when God said, and so here are these laws that help you to know how you do what you do, how you stay current, how you stay in this covenant. This is how you will participate faithfully in this covenant. Here are these laws, the 10 words, how you will participate in this covenant. But the tablets themselves weren't the covenant. The covenant 
has to do with the heart of God and the commitment of God. I led you out of Egypt. I was a husband to you. But once you got out of there, you sought other lovers. The word translated husband here is Baal. Also used, also used in reference to the other gods that the people of Israel would chase. Almost like they were chasing a lover. I was your husband. I was your lover. But... You broke that covenant, so we're going to make a different one. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. The seat, not just of emotion, but the seat of will in the Hebrew mind, where you decide. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is a huge move. This is a huge move. God says, okay, I'm going to take a full step closer. Before, I handed you these laws, these words, and I said, here, do this. But now I'm going to come a full step closer, so close that instead of just handing you these laws, I'm going to be close enough to write it on your hearts and change who you are. And change who you are. Wait a minute, are we being programmed then, John? Are we being programmed to follow these words, these rules, these laws? If so, God has just eliminated free will, and I don't like a God that eliminates my free will. No, what God is saying here is there will be a love relationship, a deep, a deep love relationship that will be so deep and so good, you'll be glad. You'll be glad. Two things. You'll be glad to stay within that covenant. And number two, you will be your most, you will be most you in this new covenant. You will be most you, you will be most like the person and the people God created you to be when you are a part of this covenant, when you're a functioning part of this covenant that God will come close enough to give and inscribe on your hearts. No longer when there is this kind of intimacy when there's this kind of love, when there, is, when there is this kind of relationship, no longer shall they teach one another or say to one another, you should know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. All of this speaks of the deep an intimate relationship with God that can be had between a person and God or between a people and God that can be so good and so deep and so loving that Paul would say it like this, you don't really need the law to stay within this particular relationship and covenant. How is your Lent going? Are you observing your Lenten observance. Does it feel like a chore on the list? Well, 
are you doing it for the right reasons? The reason, the reason that we do stuff like a Lenten observance, the reason that we push you as hard as we push you to read scripture and to be in prayer and to serve and to be involved here on a weekly basis. Hear me say this again. I really think you need to make a commitment to being here on a weekly basis. How deep should that commitment be? The same as mine. And here's why. Here's why. Not because God will somehow be angry with you if you don't, but because if you're not regularly oriented by Scripture, by prayer, by regular participation in the life of faith, by service, by worship, if you're not regularly oriented, then you will not stay aware of the depth and the quality of love that God has for God's people. It's not because God's going to be mad at you if you don't. It's because if you don't, you probably won't love God the way that you could or should or might. Does that make some sense? But we are not all the way there yet. This is one of those passages that forecasts the glory that will be. But we are not all, all the way there yet. Hopefully we are participating individually and as a people, in moving things that direction. But hear me say, I realize, so with a straight face I will say to you, this is great and we need this. We need to put this in front of us. But we are not all the way there yet. It's where we're headed, but we're not all the way there yet. The dreams of God, as we have seen in all these different passages that I've listed for you today, the dreams of God are about the entire world and all people. You should know that right? God has in mind the reclaiming of all things. And all God's people said, because that's a hard one to sell to some Christians. Not Again, nobody here. You're smarter than the average Christian bears out there. You just really are. But some people think it's just about us. But no, it's only about us because God wants to use us to reach all of them. There are some people who are kind of disappointed that God has in mind that God would reclaim and rescue everyone because we just really hate some of those people. And maybe with good reason. But that is the dream of God. And we probably ought to get on board. Amen? Okay, that was half-hearted, but okay. (laughs) The dreams of God are about here and now, here and now. Here and now, I do wholeheartedly believe in heaven, an existence after death, wholeheartedly believe in it. I believe just as much in the impact that Christ and Christianity can have today. I believe that many times when we read the language of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, Jesus is talking about the here and now, but to take ourselves off of that hook because we're kind of busy already tomorrow. We have made it about hereafter. Kingdom of heaven is like, no, no, no. It's about God's stubborn dreams for here and now and today. And our Christian energy is best spent on today. God can take care of the hereafter. The dreams of God are about real, tangible life. 
Do I want you to take control with God's help of your thought world? Yes. Your attitudes? Yes, absolutely. Your interior? Yes. But God has in mind your exterior as well. God has in mind that about life which is most sometimes painfully tangible and touchable. Please do not retreat inside of yourself, walk away from the world, and call that Christianity. Christianity does the exact opposite. It pushes you out of here, into the out there, in the stubborn belief that all of creation is in process and you're a part of God's process for all of creation. So, it's that big. It's that current, and it's that real. But it's all in process. But God has in mind, and we're going to see it now in the Gospel of John, a way to go about this that starts to accomplish Jeremiah 31. God's going to make a full step toward this kind of intimacy that when captured by this intimacy, results in your giving your life back to God as a reflection of God's intimacy. It's you saying yes to God. The first sermon series I ever preached here as your senior pastor, we walked slowly through the book of Matthew and said this every week. Somebody had asked me, when do people get saved around here? I love that question. Love it. And I want to say this, when are they not getting saved around here? And I said this to you every week in that Matthew thing. Say yes, say yes. God's hand is extended to you. You cannot make God do any more than God has already done to reach towards you. God has already extended God's hand to you. You and I need to say yes to that which has already been offered and extended to us. And here is how God has extended God's self to us. Now, among those, reading from John 20, who went up to worship at the festival, it's Passover again, there were some Greeks. Another way to understand this is, is this way. There were around Jesus now, at this Passover festival, people who were interested in Jesus and the movement of this new kingdom, this new Messiah, there were some people around Jesus who weren't just Jewish. It had reached beyond this ethnic line. There are some Greeks now, and these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida and Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We want to see this Jesus. And so Jesus goes and talks to Nathaniel. They have a little church committee meeting right there before they decide to go all the way to Jesus. And Jesus' response was fascinating. Jesus didn't actually respond to the Greeks. Jesus saw their presence as evidence something big is happening. Here's what's happening. God is moving to accomplish what Jeremiah is talking about. This new kind of covenant not just inscribed and engraved on tablets but this new kind of covenant that is written on hearts. Jesus knew that in and through him that God is moving to accomplish Jeremiah 31. 
You can tell that because he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In a very interesting term in the book of John, this term glorified. The Christ event is what he's talking about here. Anytime you see here, anytime in the book of John you see this concept of glory or being glorified, what John has in mind and what we should have in mind is this, that Christ would be crucified, but it does not stop there. It does for some people. It just stops right here for some people. Christ is nothing more than just a sacrifice that changes God's heart about us. But like we said last week, that's not us. For us, it doesn't stop at the cross, and amen that it doesn't stop at the cross. So when Christ is glorified, it is the cross for sure, because this is the extent to which love will go to make love's point. And then the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus was right, and this is the way to go about life. So it's the cross and it's the resurrection, but it's also the ascension. The Son of Man is glorified not just when he's killed, but also when he is raised to life and when he ascends to a place of authority. Authority over all of this and all of us. Very truly I tell you, he says, knowing what's coming, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now we think in the book of John that when Jesus uses the language of fruit, that he's actually talking about us. In John 15, Jesus will talk again about bearing fruit. He'll say, Stay attached to me, stay close to me, and so long as you are attached to me and close to me, you will bear much fruit. He seems to be talking about the people who would choose to be in this loving relationship with God through Christ. And the kingdom and the movement and the group of people that would be built, who would understand themselves to be a part of the body of Christ, within this covenant of God, offered by God, people in this intimate, loving relationship with God, Jesus seems to understand that in his move toward now death, because that's the extent to which love will go to make love's point, Jesus seems to understand that now we are constituting a different kind of people who are brought in not because they've signed up to follow every letter of the law, but because they have said yes to the offer of relationship from the God who loves them this much. Oh man, that needed more than that. A new kind of people group brought together now, not by the boundaries of the law, but by the love of God in Christ. But it will require something different from us as covenant partners of God. So just as in the Old Testament, the people of God were understood as sort of the the spouse of God, who weren't supposed to follow other husbands or lovers, So now, in order to take full advantage of this offer of intimacy and relationship from God, we too must turn our backs on the other threats to our allegiance to God the Father. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. But again, we've said this now a couple times, eternal life in the book of John is not about all the innumerable days that you will live where there are streets of gold and pearly gates. 
still believe in the hereafter, but this is not about that. It's about life lived in the unending presence of God. Life always lived in response to the limitless presence of God. That's what Jesus means in the book of John when he says eternal life. So let's read this again. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it and experience life in the presence of God, presence of God that is limitless and unending. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. After this, it's a very interesting exchange. Jesus says, glorify your name. A voice that we understand to be God's voice says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it, glorify it again. Well, this is really important. Hear this. The voice from heaven says, I have glorified it already in your life. So God has been made evident, glorified. God has been made evident in the life of Christ. Not just in the death of Christ, but in the life of Christ, which is good news for all of us who want to continue to live. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now, other people heard it. They just thought it had thundered. Jesus said, no, that, that wasn't thunder. That was the voice of God. And by the way, that voice came for you, not for me. It's supposed to be insight and leadership and hope for you, Jesus said. He says this incredible thing now. Okay. This other ruler, this other lover biding for your attention, vying for your attention, looking to somehow steal you away from God the lover expressed in Christ. This other lover is about to be defeated. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Quick word of testimony here, some of which you have heard before. My life of faith didn't change until I said yes to the love that had captured me. I grew up very well behaved. Very well behaved. I I didn't necessarily understand the love portion of this covenant just yet. I did understand the behavior part. I did understand the the guilt part as well, when behavior did not necessarily meet the standard. I did understand that I was not all that God had hoped for me to be, and I did understand that in that moment moment of realization, I was faced with a couple of options, to uh, go back again and try to get a deeper, better dose so that I could finally behave the way God wanted me to, thoughts and all. Or pull the wool over all of your eyes 
and just not ever address it, and now we're back to that whole integrity and honesty issue. But then, in 1992, so a couple of years actually after I started as a youth pastor here, <laughs> I was absolutely captured by the grace and love of God. I knew I didn't deserve it, which made it all the more enthralling to me. I knew in that moment that God knew all that I was and all that I wasn't and still chose me. And that choice that God made for me so captured my mind and heart that I said a full-throated, full-bodied, yes, yes, you may have me. The term intimacy with God until that point made no sense to me. I knew it. It was familiar to me. It just didn't make any sense to me. After that, it made perfect sense to me. When I started to see the cross, not as evidence of God's posture toward my sin, an angry God must have a bloody sacrifice, but when I started to see the cross as evidence of how far God would go to convince me of God's love for me, when I finally got there, my heart was strangely warmed. And I found that as I lived in response to this love and grace, that I lived a life of a much higher moral quality than I had before when I was both preoccupied by and horrified by all the rules that I could not quite attain. In other words, Jeremiah 31 seems to have happened to me. The law that was out before me that I couldn't quite attain, God wrote into my DNA. <coughs> God has not limited my freedom. God has unleashed my freedom. <laughs> God has not somehow negatively influenced me and changed me into something I didn't want to be. God has made me the me he wanted me to be. Now, not without fault, but now, rather than going back to the law to see how far short I've fallen, I always go back to that grace to see how high I can go. That's what Jesus means when Jesus says, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, and you understand what it is that you're looking at, and you see me lifted up, and not just on the cross, but also in the resurrection and the, and the ascension, but I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, perhaps one at a time. Are you next? One at a time, two at a time, three at a time, until finally there are a group of people who live their lives as if their very hearts have been inscribed with the law of God. <coughs> and so we begin with Ash Wednesday. Again, yes, acknowledging, acknowledging our failure to be all that Christ wants us to be, our failure to be Christ. 
But we wear these ashes on the sign of the cross also to stay reminded of how far love will go to make love's point with folks who are just chronically human and normal like me and like you. The ashes aren't just mourning, they're also hope. Because, you know, you're in process. And all of creation is in process. God's process. And the process that all of creation, all of humanity is going through can be helped along by faithful and obedient people who are captured not by the law of God, but by the heart and the offer of relationship from God and who respond with a fully lived out yes. Perfectly? Probably not. But people who always return to the heart of God and then respond in faithfulness and obedience. It's the heart of God that's always on display when we take the Lord's Supper. And if you are coming to help us, would you go ahead and come on and come on up? It starts with Ash Wednesday. It continues every week as we take the Lord's Supper, which all at the same time is evidence. Yes, yes, of our own sinfulness and our own fracture of the judgment that we take on ourselves because we are chronically normal and human. But it is also evidence, at the very same time, it is evidence of the grace of God that meets us here every week at the point of our brokenness, offering us not just forgiveness, but sustenance to move forward, to be strengthened, to be God's people, to say, yes, you realize you have an opportunity every week to say yes. When are people being saved around here? When are they not? Every week you get a chance to say yes to the God who desires your rescue and your restoration. Heavenly Father, bless these elements. And use them today, God, to remind us not just of our sin and brokenness. Yes, do that. But beyond that, God, use these elements to remind us of your faithfulness, your gifts of grace, your forgiveness that's available to us, expressed every week in this tangible sort of way. And then, God, make us into tangible expressions of the kingdom that is already present and moving and moving forward and active. God, give us just enough grace that we can give ourselves some grace to recognize that we are people in process. May we at the, at the same time recognize that all of humanity is in process. May we recognize that we can be involved in that process whereby you move all of creation toward your dreams and visions for it. As we are romanced, romanced into relationship with you and as we say our yeses each week, not just here, but outside of this place as well. So grow this bond between us, God, between each of us and you, between all of us and you, 
grow and deepen this intimate bond between us so that we can live out of that bond, respond to it, and take our places in the process you are moving all of creation through. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and move out of your pew to the left and come forward. All of you who wish to participate, no one is compelled to participate. Who is welcome at this table? Anyone who understands his or her need for grace is welcome at this table. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and move to your left and move forward. Come with your hands cupped, ready to receive this gift that you cannot charge or pay for or steal or take. Receive this bit of grace. When you receive the bread, that person will say to you, the body of Christ broken for you. Then take that bit of bread and dip it into the cup. When you do, that person will say, the blood of Christ shed for you. And then take and eat right then and there. After that, I would invite you to find a place to pray. If you choose to pray at one of these side padded altars, we will assume that you need a prayer for healing and someone will meet you there to pray that prayer. If you pray anywhere along these front wooden kneeling benches, then someone will meet you there and put a hand on your back or on your shoulder so that you will understand that you do not pray alone. It was on the night that our Savior was betrayed and he took bread and he blessed it. He broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat this bread, remember me. And afterwards, he took the cup. He held it up before them and he said, and this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for you. And every time you drink of it, remember me. Remember this Jesus high and lifted up. All across the sanctuary now, I want to invite you to stand. Exit your pew to the left and then come forward. If you can't come to us, then rest assured, Jason will be coming to you. He will find you. Become ready to receive this grace. my life, Lord, and here's my 
Father, we begin with words of confession. When it comes to some of these deep, deep promises that we see in Scripture, we find at times those, harm, those promises hard to believe. God, we are very aware of the fractures in creation fractures between people. We are aware of those fractures that happen on an international scale, but Lord, we're aware of those fractures that happen on a day-to-day, very personal scale. And so, God, we find some of these scriptures elusive. We find some of these promises difficult to believe, much less to participate in. We confess that to you now in the hopes that you can capture us with grace 
enliven our imaginations and give us some glimpse, small as it might be or big as it might be, give us a glimpse of your movement and activity. God, don't let us be addicted to our own perspective, but may we allow that there are other places in which the kingdom is, in fact, moving forward and advancing. And may we see it here. May we have eyes to see it here and ears to hear of it here. May we recognize that in you that does not change your covenantal commitment to us, covenantal commitment to this dream and this vision. So if nothing else, God, may we find some solace in your stubbornness. Father, you know about some of these issues that we're about to bring to your attention, but we will say them out loud and pray them publicly again to pound on heaven's doors. So hear us as we offer these issues to you. God, you would reclaim and heal, bless, restore. Lord, we want to ask that you would be with June Adams. Lord, as she undergoes this chemotherapy, Lord, we ask that you would, through medicine and through your spirit, heal her cancer. Surround our Kay and Angela. Lord, we're thankful for some of the news that Lynn Caprero got this week. But just ask God that each and every week you would heal and bless Lynn in his life been a very difficult week for Iris Glisson, Linda Crosma. So Lord, we together with Linda, together with Walt, ask God that you would take mercy upon her and that God, you would bless her with your presence and your peace and your life. There are so many others. Another is Debbie McKenzie. Lord, as she has learned she does have cancer, we ask God that you would heal her, surround her, her family, with your spirit even now as Debbie's here with us, resting and praying. Lord, I ask your presence would be so strong with Debbie. Lord, we ask that you would heal Bob Dargan. Everyone in this room has someone in their heart and their mind that they just need a physical touch from Jesus. In these moments, would you think and pray for that person who you're carrying in your heart and your mind today? Lord, it's our prayer that you would transform us into your people who believe and live into 
the prayer that you taught your disciples to pray. And we'll pray this morning using debts and debtors. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 